This morning I had a twinge, the way you do with anybody who is gone, of wanting her back. I never knew Nancy Butler when she didn't have ALS. It's striking how much I came to depend on someone, even as she became dependent on a phalanx of caregivers and family members for virtually every physical need a human being has. You're about to hear my first conversation with her in the spring of 2015. What I didn't know during the show that you'll be listening to is that my head and heart were about to change. The whole idea was... I was a journalist asking a very religious person about her horrible disease. That set of boundaries fell apart pretty quickly. I never left the church. The conversations continued almost right up to the moment she died last Wednesday. At Riverfront Family Church, we have a song that goes, My lighthouse, my lighthouse, shining in the darkness, I will follow you. It's about God, but it fits Nancy. I just spent two days at events celebrating her life, and the same words kept coming up. Bright, shining, radiant, refulgent. Her favorite color was yellow. She was like a natural light source. Nancy's death touched off a wave of coverage. One of my columns about her ran in a Montana newspaper. Her own letter, written to the congregation during her final days, appeared in a Virginia paper. But we want you to hear her 18 months ago, before ALS did the worst of its damage. You know, driving back Sunday from the final observance, the sky was slate gray to the east and north and south. In the west, the sun blazed smoky white and radiant, blasting a hole in those clouds. I thought, I know who that is, my lighthouse. Nancy Butler's going to tell you her story. I'm just going to try to help that process. And as I say, she is right now facing the kind of news that nobody wants to get. But um, she's got an awful lot to undergird her. But let's begin when you're nine years old. Is that okay to begin That's when you're nine years old? That's a perfect place to begin. That's what I think, too. Yeah. Well, I was raised in a Methodist church that, to be honest, was a little sleepy spiritually. and didn't really get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. And this kind of nutty evangelical lady in our town kept trying to round up kids for this Bible camp. And uh, so somehow I got rounded up and shipped off to this Bible camp for one week. And actually, God just really touched me as a nine-year-old. Um, as they told the Bible stories, I just had this, like, this is true. I just somehow knew in my gut this is true. And at the end of the week, they said, would you give your life to God? And I said, yes, I did. And I meant it. And they said, well, start praying and reading your Bible every day. So I just did. And so that became the center of my life at a very young age. One thing you were saying on a recent Sunday was, I mean, you were going back to a life uh, that you had left the previous week or however long this took, uh, where you didn't do all that stuff. And you kind of questioning how much of that to share with your friends, right? You were, yeah. you were growing, all your friends, they weren't evangelical Christians no, or anything like that, no, right? No, no, I kept it very private. Instead of dear diary, I'd write dear God. So I journaled to God almost every day. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my five brothers and sisters, they found all my journals and read them all <laughs> and laughed really hard. But, <laughs> but, um, but it was kind of a private faith as a child, yeah. And how long did that last for, this kind of uh, young girl who's not attending a church that really reinforces the kind of feelings that you're having? How how long were you in that state? Well, my mom actually had a real conversion experience. I think maybe I was in middle school or early high school. So we used to talk a lot and read the same books together. And then I joined up with people, the singing group, in between high school and college. Why does that not surprise me? Yeah, up up (laughs) with people. Um, So we had a little fellowship group of Christians that met there. That was the first time I ever met a peer 
that kind of shared my faith commitment. It was all women for some reason in this little group, like eight of us or something up with people. Then I went to Duke and I joined InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And that's probably the first time I was in a large group of peers that shared my faith. Yeah, there's two courageous things that you have to do, really. One of them is speak your faith, and the other one is live in Connecticut and say you went to Duke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's it's sort of true. A whammy I for first you. moved here, I had no idea how much people hated Duke. <laughs> and during March Madness, they said, Where are your favorite basketball teams? So I wore my Duke sweatshirt to work, and I almost got like beat up in the parking lot, and my eye drive deleted. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> and so you met uh, the man that you married in high school? Yes, yeah, right? so yeah. we were high school. So we've known each other since fifth grade. Wow. Spanish class. He was Manolito Montoyo, and I was Susita Colon. And then we started dating just for a few months in high school. We had no idea that it was going to become so serious at that time, but we and, have known each other a long time. And did he, at that time, was he in a comparable state uh, in terms of his faith? Or, or? Not at all. Yeah, um, he, yeah he, he was raised Catholic, was very, I think he was questioning his Catholic faith. I think he was going through kind of that kind of stage. Um, so it was an issue in our dating because I had decided I didn't want to marry someone who didn't share my faith. Mm-hmm. And so poor guy had to kind of prove himself <laughs> spiritually. Um, we dated for eight years on and off and on and off. But actually, God really did work in his heart, and that became something that was the foundation of our marriage. So when you say share your faith, I mean, there's a lot of ways to be a Christian. and There's right, a lot of ways right. to um, relate to the Bible. So what, what does it mean to share your faith, to be in the kind of communion with God and with Jesus that you're yeah. in? Yeah, I agree. I don't think the labels or any of that stuff matters. Um, I think, you know, it says seek first the kingdom of God. It's somebody who um, has decided, I want to try and do God's will today. Like, that's what I'm about, that I've given my life to God. So I wanted somebody who had that same philosophy of life. There was a, in church, uh, there was a, this uh, African-American man who told this kind of amazing story of all these things that had happened to him recently, including right, the roof ripped off his house and the yeah. hood of his car flew up while he was driving yeah. it and all this stuff. But anyway, he said, I'm just, I'm just trying to do the next right thing. Yeah. That really stayed with me. I thought, yeah. oh, what a great way to say that. Uh, yeah, that is, I think, the best prayer of all was Jesus just saying, your will be done. And so that's what I try to do every day. I'm human, but, you know, do my best. So we're talking to Nancy Butler right now. So um, uh, I don't mean to leapfrog over parts of your life, and I, I only know what I know. So one of the things that you did, uh, you have talked about recently, well, you got your MBA, right? Yep. So I got my MBA in marketing. Yep. And so at some point, uh, you and your husband are living in the Beltway area, and you're working for a defense contractor, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was my first. Well, I was a religion major at Duke. I fell in love awesome religion department. And when I graduated, I had never seen a female pastor before. I think I would have jumped right into that. Mm-hmm. It didn't even dawn on me. I thought, well, I could be the Christian education lady, but it pays like $12,000 <laughs> a year. Every time they cut the budget, that's the first thing that gets cut. Mm-hmm. And my dad goes, you're really smart. Go do something else and just do that as a hobby. Mm-hmm. So I became a human resource manager, and I did that. That was my first kind of career. And I, we were in the Beltway working for a defense contractor. So uh, a couple of Sundays ago, I was there in church, and you said, and that, that oh, at a certain point, you woke up one day and said, you know, basically, we make torpedoes here, yes. right? Yeah, I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like, God's given me this ability, and what am I using it for? I'm just making money and being successful, and and I always wanted to be a missionary as a child, and so um, I started re kind of dreaming about that again. Tell the story about how you you had friends and one of them had been to Honduras, right, and got parasites. Yes, yeah. and he fought these parasites for years. It wasn't just a like. 
go on antibiotics or whatever. Um, yeah. And so you told Greg, we're just going to go. We're not going to pick. We're not going to try to guide it. We're just going to go whatever, wherever right. we get called to do. We're just going to sit there and hear where the, the name of the place that we're right. going. We yeah. said to World Relief, we'll go anywhere. We'll do anything, you know, whatever God wants us to do. And I was like scared, but I said it anyway. <laughs> and they called us up and they said, well, we found the spot for you and your husband. You're going to go to... And I was like, oh, no, it's Honduras. I'm going to get parasites. And then she said, Hong Kong. I was like, Hong Kong? Hong Kong? It's like New York City. It's like an awesome place to live. We loved Hong Kong. It was like a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when you were doing it a couple of Sundays ago, you said as the word – as the age came out, you said – Okay, God, I'll get parasites for you. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, and, but we had great food and a great time the whole year in Hong Kong. But I mean, that's not all you were doing, right? You're working with a refugee yeah, organization. Yeah, we worked in the Vietnamese refugee camp. Yeah, and this was, I think, maybe 1980. So at that point, most of the refugees from were North Vietnam mm-hmm. um, and mostly economic migrants. So the U.S. wasn't resettling them at that point because they weren't really political refugees anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were just stuck in Hong Kong year after year, and so that was the population we worked with. So did that? experience change you? I mean, obviously, you were already making a change. You decided you weren't going to work for the torpedo company anymore. Yes, definitely. Also, be honest, like the first day we walked into the camp, all the kids were screaming, om die, om die, bye die, bye die, which means white man, white woman. Mm -hmm. They'd never seen a woman with blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And all the faces looked the same to me. I hate to say it, but they all looked like Xerox copies of each other. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the year, I knew every name. I knew who was funny. I knew who was smart. I knew who was a jerk. I knew who was helpful. I knew who was kind. I knew they were people I loved and knew personally and dearly. Um, so I don't know. I think that's when you realize that we are all just human, mm-hmm. regardless of whatever life experiences we've had. And I think maybe also a moment where you realize that by being there and witnessing the way that you were witnessing, that you, you're going to change people. I mean, yeah. people are going to change as a result yeah. of what you're doing, right? Yeah. I think I did have an impact on the people that we worked with, and that was very rewarding. So at what point did you start to think that maybe you would found your own church? That comes a, a ways later, right? Yeah, much later. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't like labels too much, but basically I'm a progressive evangelical, mm-hmm. and there's no such church as that. So I, um, <laughs> I started raising my kids in an evangelical church, and the preaching was great, and people had a similar life that was very centered on their faith. It was a similar commitment. Um, but I never agreed on the social issues right from the get-go. You know, this idea that everybody goes to hell except us. I'm like, Really? Come on. Like, that cannot be how this all comes down. So I had that problem and then the role of women and then gay rights. So I just had a lot of social problems with evangelicals. So I kept bouncing around between evangelical and progressive mainline churches. And there are things I love about both. And I kept saying, why can't there be both a church that has this very serious commitment and passion um, but also is progressive on social issues? So I'd had this beef for a long time and then finally decided to just do it. Maybe we should uh, take a moment and just sort of say what the word evangelical means because I think people project a lot of stuff onto it and have their own ideas about about what it means. When you say you're an evangelical, <laughs> what do you mean by that? be honest, it's a subculture. I think within – it's a very – like 3 percent of the population in New England. But if you went down to uh, Georgia or mm-hmm. you know somewhere like that, it's a majority culture. And it's a certain style of preaching, a certain style of music, a certain worldview, a certain theology. It's a lot of – different things that make up that subculture. But from a religious studies perspective, when we say evangelical, we really do mean sort of focus on the Bible, right? Focus on the Bible as when we look at religion, we often talk about where does authority come from? Where is authority vested in that particular religion? But a mainline church will say we believe in sola scriptura, but we just interpret it differently. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can kind of wiggle around with the sola scriptura thing. 
But yes, I think as a practical matter, um, both may say that, but as a practical matter, evangelicals um, are very biblically rooted. You know, you were sort of saying you're a progressive evangelical, but there's no such thing. Well, there kind of is all of a sudden, right? I mean, in some ways, (laughs) you could say that there always was, that, you know, the first progressive evangelical was Jesus. My friend uh, Hugh Blumenfeld has a song called, uh, the the chorus is, let's all sing our praises to that long-haired radical socialist Jew. So the first progressive evangelical might have been Jesus. But now there really seems to be kind of a movement, a movement that you've been part of. I'm very proud because the reason I planted my church is literally the only welcoming and affirming evangelical church. I had ever heard of in the whole world. I, I still to this day, I don't know of anybody else who started a welcoming and affirming evangelical church, you know, at that period of time. And now it's becoming, I think the culture has shifted mm-hmm. and the church, unfortunately, is bringing the tail end of social change, but at least it is changing. This is sort of an important thing, too, because even if you think about some of the people who brought the evangelical ideas to this country, you know, they may not have had ideas that are progressive by today's standards, but I think in some ways they were reformers, they were progressives. In some ways, I think it's the evangelical music movement reclaiming some of its yeah. old heritage. Yeah. Well, the UCC was the Puritans, and they were yeah. radical reformers at the time. You did at a certain point think, okay, I'll start the kind of church I want to go to. I actually quit my job in marketing, and um, we were we were sponsoring refugees from Sierra Leone. So I was almost like full time social worker, and so I was kind of rethinking the the next phase of my career. And I read Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, slapped the book closed, turned to my husband, and said, "Oh my gosh, that would be so fun! It would take kind of the entrepreneurial MBA side of me, the part that likes business and entrepreneurial stuff, and the spiritual side of me that's been like unhappy with the church for so long, and maybe do something really new and cool." So it was like a moment, and Greg goes. Do it. So that's when I started divinity school. Like I have not been ordained at that point. So when I was about 40, I went to Yale Divinity School. When you started that church, how many people were in it? Oh, nobody. So I started (laughs) out with just my husband and myself, and I invited just everybody I knew over to the house. Actually, my previous church said, don't steal our sheep. Mm -hmm. So I was like, there was a little bit of, I think I was a threat maybe to some of the churches that I had been previously a member of. So I had to be careful not to, quote, steal sheep from other churches. So I invited everybody I knew that wouldn't be too toe stepped on or whatever to like a little PowerPoint presentation of the vision of the church at our house. Mm -hmm. And a handful of people said, I'll help you do that. An unlikely handful of people. One of my best friends who's very devoutly Catholic still, she'd come to our church and then go to Mass afterwards. And she's still a devout Catholic. But she said, I'll be Doodle the Dog. And she was Doodle the Dog for, I don't know, three or four years. You better explain about Doodle the Dog. So uh, we started out with a service that's for families, parents and children together. And it's highly entertaining, just 45 minutes long, really a performance more than probably a traditional worship service. So anyway, our mascot for that family time service is Doodle the Dog, which is just a big dog. You know, and dog is God spelled backwards, so it kind of symbolizes <laughs> God's warm, loving embrace when you come to church. I've been to your services now, and the, the actual, not the family time service, but the, the uh, I guess, adult yeah, service, yeah. the other, whatever we're going to call the other thing. <laughs> right. It's kind of loosey-goosey in a way. There's, I mean, you're up there, and you're speaking, and there's music first, and then you speak. But then, like, everybody kind of talks, right? Has yeah. it always been that way? Did you always do it that no, way? No. We've kind of, as a, you know, I have a board, a leadership team. We make decisions together. And we were saying that I think it was just maybe a year and a half ago we started having what we call testimony time. We just opened the floor for anybody to reflect on how the sermon might have impacted them or what God did in their life this week. And now I think it's our favorite part of the service. One of my board members kind of has a mystical background and a Quaker background. He said, we need more silence and time to digest this. So really, we keep changing the service. But now we do the sermon. We have five minutes of just silent prayer to reflect 
on whatever you want to reflect on. And then we have the testimony time. And now everybody loves that. Like we wouldn't ever change it. That's a little bit quicker too in a way. Yes. Yeah, it is. We're going to take a little break here. We're talking to Nancy Butler. We're going to begin to tell you some of the rest of her story when we get back from this. Sun's up. Mm -hmm. Looks okay. The world survives into another day. And I'm thinking about eternity. Some kind of ecstasy got to hold on me. Had another dream about a We're back with uh, Nancy Butler, the Reverend Nancy. You go by the Reverend Nancy Butler? The UCC, they just say Nancy. Mm. I remember saying to my first UCC pastor, what should I kids call you? And he said, Jim. I'm like, Jim? They just call you Jim? And he goes, yep. <laughs> so they didn't want to kind of put you up on a pedestal. So we kind of compromised. The kids call me Pastor Nancy and the adults call me just call me Nancy. One of the other parts of the story, one of the other things that brings us here together today is that uh, you've been struggling now with a very horrible disease called ALS. How How long ago did this first begin to to show itself in in your body? October of uh, 2013, I just started tripping on my toes. That's how it started. Mm -hmm. And I hate going to the doctor. I ignored it for a long time. And then finally in early December, went to the doctor. We thought, he thought, oh, is it probably just a disc or something? We'll do an MRI, get a little physical therapy. That'll be fun. And, you know, no problem. And then I ended up going to the Mayo Clinic. Um, So I think about a year ago, they tentatively diagnosed it as PLS, Mm -hmm. which is a non-fatal form of ALS. But they said it could be early ALS. So I always had that kind of hanging over my head, hoping it wasn't. And then February 17th, my grandson's birthday, I was told it was ALS. Well, first of all, this must have been such a scary thing to go through. Yeah, it's funny. My husband and I used to lay in bed and say, everybody we know has been touched by tragedy except us. Like, we're healthy. We have plenty of money. We have great kids. We have a great friends and family. We're like, It's almost guilty. Like, our lives are just so awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to be honest, it was like... Me? I have ALS. It just, my life has been charmed, to be honest with you. So um, it was just a, I can't even believe this happened to me. You know, yeah. it's ego or what, but it was, it was a shock. How do you feel right now? I feel fine. Mm. I, uh, yeah, there's no pain associated with it. And I will say these trials grow you spiritually. So I do mm. feel, I mean, I've always felt close to God, but I particularly feel his comfort and his presence. You feel fine, but obviously you are in a wheelchair and there's weakness in yes. in, in your limbs, yeah. right? Yep. I have one caregiver that comes every Sunday morning. It's the only time she sees me. And it makes me realize how quickly it's progressing. So mm-hmm. she'll come and be like, oh, I forgot to tell you I can't put contacts in my eyes anymore. Oh, I forgot to tell you I can't get the toothpaste on my toothbrush anymore. Oh, I forgot to tell you I have to be lifted here, lifted there. <laughs> So it, it's progressing quickly. I'd say quicker than average. Yeah. Um, we should do a shout out to the fact that Valerie, uh, your caregiver, is here with us right now. Yes, she is. The first time I was at the church, I was talking to your husband, Greg, about the fact that – and this is such an incredibly minor comparison. But I had this experience when uh, back around 2000. My life was in a very, very confusing place and it was moving way too fast. And there were just too many things going on and I wasn't making – I was making some really bad decisions too. And I was out on the soccer field with my son and some of his friends. I used to take them out just to play soccer for fun on Sundays. And I was sort of cutting back like Mia Hamm does and I totally tore my quadriceps tendon so that it wasn't – my quadriceps muscle was no longer attached to my knee. What I was saying to Greg was that 
there was a kind of quietness and a stillness that came that I suddenly realized I needed. I really became grateful and I also had asked people to do stuff. And I, I don't, you're probably the same way. I hate asking people to do yeah. stuff for me. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, but I wonder if the disease is, in a strange way, communicating various things to you about It simplifies yourself. my life. Like you said, I just can't do all the things I used to do. So I just have to think, well, what really matters? And I'll just do that. Yeah. So it, it is kind of a, in a weird way, easier life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are very lit up from within. I, and I, I assume that's just the way you've been your whole life, right? You're, you've got this very infectious... I think I was born with a sunny personality. Yeah. I could say it's Jesus in my heart. Maybe that helps. But, you know, <laughs> but I think I also was born with just a, a positive personality for some reason. But I'm, I'm sort of amazed, too. I mean, this is just a hard thing for people, to, for anybody to go through. And, I mean, you must have moments kind of maybe out of the public view, maybe moments only Greg sees where no. it's yeah. real sad, right? No, I cry almost every day. Mm. But usually what makes me cry is um, my brother calls me a mitzvah magnet. Like everyone's just so freaking nice <laughs> to me all the time. I've been inundated with like soap of hope and prayer shawls and cards and flowers and what can I do? And so you I, cry cry, to... I cry a lot because everyone's just so nice to me. Because you're touched by that. Yes, yeah. This also, uh, though, is a big moment for your relationship with God. I mean, here you are doing what you what you have always thought God wanted you to do. How do you process it? And it must be something you have to talk to your flock about, too. Yeah, like, why yeah, is this happening yeah, to Nancy? Yeah. I'm almost glad it happened theologically. But, um, but I think it does sharpen your theology to go through something like this. Um, just to remember that God does not send illness or suffering or sickness. That's the whole point of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and who knows what Satan and sin and all that stuff is, but that it's not or, or, or originating with God. But that in theory, God has the power to remove these things. He could heal somebody. He's God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, he's chosen not to. So, and Greg said, what's the difference between zapping you with ALS and not removing ALS? Um, I think there is a subtle difference. I think God, just like he let his own son um, go through suffering, um, he lets the children he loves very much here on earth go through suffering for a reason we don't always understand. But I do believe there can be meaning and productivity that you can have in a time of suffering that you don't have when things are all going uh, rosy. Yeah, no, I get that. Uh, but you also have to communicate it, uh, about it to a whole bunch of people um, who d- depend on you and who – but I'm, I'm thinking for children in particular. Do you have to tell them a different story? What story do you tell them? Same thing, that God doesn't send sickness. Our kids suffer. I've got a child with Hutchinson's disease. I have children who have come through DCF and had a lot of abuse early in their childhood. So those children understand suffering. They see it. They see grandparents with cancer or whatever. The kids hand, Actually, kids handle it really well. Mm-hmm. They pick up on your mood. You know, If you're positive, they, they want to take a ride on your wheelchair or whatever. They, they, <laughs> they seem to accept me as I'm still Nancy. And um, But I think I might have a little more power in my preaching because I've tasted suffering firsthand. Um, well, let me ask you a little bit more about that. So do you feel as though that's guiding you in a certain way? I mean, every week you pick uh, a theme, uh, and there's a theme for this month, which has been peace. Right. Um, do you feel as though what you're going through is guiding those kinds of choices? You said it may put, put more power uh, in your preaching. There's no question. I mean, you know, they say um, – Preaching is truth through personality. Mm -hmm. So you try not to make it all about you. But the truth is I have a prayer time every day and God will speak to me. And it's through my experience and my personality and, you know, whatever. 
So I think uh, your personal life experience does come out in your preaching. Um, no, I don't hear you make it about you at all. Although I think what's interesting about the way that you conduct your services is that things have a chance to become universal. Like yeah. the first Sunday I was there, as you know, you were talking about uh, this uh, passage in Luke that really does add up to Adina Menzel singing, let it go, yeah. let it go. So, and I was sitting there and I, there was something I really did need to let go of, some, a place where this kind of pettiness had kind of grabbed me uh, in a way that I, I sort of didn't recognize myself. But I also was – and I was sort of – I had been for two or three weeks thinking, yeah, this isn't really you the way you're thinking about this particular situation. You're thinking about money and you're thinking about what's yours and stuff like that. And I, you know, I'm, you picked this for your own reasons, the thing that we wound up uh, talking about that day. Right. But I think everybody sitting in that church had yeah. their own little thing. That's right? true. To me, that's what the Holy Spirit is, is that um, I think God is desperate to help people and speak truth into their lives, bring healing and happiness. And so church is just making that space for God to do that. So my prayer every Sunday is everybody hears something different, but if they come with an open heart, many times God will speak to them just what they need, just what they need. Each person needs to hear. And people, different people hear something different. Um, Do you think about heaven now? All the time. I do. Um, I, I've written, I think, 120 hero stories for children. I've done children's ministry, you know, before I became a pastor. What's a hero story? It's kind of an oral tradition where you tell somebody kind of a biography of someone's life in 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So anyway, one of my favorites is Sojourner Truth. And uh, when she was on her deathbed in Ohio, people were lining up and, oh, I'm so sorry you're sick and it looks like you're going to die and everything else. And she said, honey. I'm not going to die. I'm going to shoot home like a star. And I thought that's how I feel. I mean, I I have such a certainty of the afterlife. Um, I used to be a chaplain at John Dempsey as part of my ordination process, and I saw people die. Mm. And there's just a – you just know that you know that that's not the end of that person. Be honest, selfishly, I just assume shoot home like a star right now, not go through (laughs) what I'm suffering right now. But I don't feel like that's what God wants me to do. So. Marcus, Bor- Marcus Borg says we die into God. Yeah. Uh, I like that idea. Yeah. I miss Marcus Borg. He was awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, I want to just come back to what you just said there because I, you know, you just soon shoot a home like a star to God right now. On the other hand, I feel like you also feel like you've got some work to do here. Yeah. I mean, in my own private prayer time and conversations with God, the weird thing about ALS is it gives you, I mean, here I am on the Colin McEnroe show. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the weird thing about ALS, I don't know, is the theory of everything and the vice fucking challenge, but like, it puts a spotlight on you, and people are mm. watching me. And so I think it is an opportunity, hopefully, um, to speak God's word and you know maybe reflect God in some way. So I do feel like God, my mission on earth is not done. I don't know when it will or how mm. or whatever, but I, my sense in prayer is um, God has things for me to do still. I, I As I said at the beginning, I really felt this, there was a voice in my head saying, and I'm not a particularly mystical person, but yeah. I was saying, Oh, no, you actually – you have to get in touch with her right now. Yeah. Uh, you have to help tell part of this story. You know, when I come to your church, I, the other thing that I'm struck by is – I mean, I, I, I used to be a religion writer for the Hartford Current, so I've been to a I lot of – lot. Yeah, yeah. It was one of my first jobs out of college. Yeah, um, huh. And you cover a lot of different kinds of religion. Yeah. And, and you cover a, lit- a lot of different kinds of worship, liturgy, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And – so I've, when I feel like I'm not, I can never walk into a church that's going to surprise me anymore. But your church kind of does. And I think one of the things about it is 
that when you walk into a church, even a really beautiful, wonderful church, a church that you like, there's a way in which authority is already kind of established and rooted. You know, there's the way that the church is structured. You know, there are just signs around saying, you know what, we've been around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and we're happy you're here, but, you know, we're still going to be around hundreds of years afterwards. And when I'm at your church, I have a very different feeling. Like it's all just we're all in, you know, on this very human scale. Am I making any sense at all? Uh. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, – I guess it goes back to a belief in the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you went to many Pentecostal or I evangelical did. churches, but mm-hmm. I think they all aim to just make a space for God to talk. And so that can be through anybody, which I mean because we're so small. I mean we're a little church. You can't do that with a mega church, you know, but we're a small church, so um, – we know each other well, and we, you know, uh, and we believe that God lives in each person and works in each person. So I guess there is a little bit of that Quaker um, philosophy in our church that, that maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Now we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back uh, with the, the the last bit of our conversation after this. Inside my breast To think that I did not forget That child, that song of Bernadette So many hearts I've found Hearts like yours and mine Torn by what we've done Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. All of our shows can be heard at wnpr.org slash Colin or iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, a conversation with author Wally Lamb. Now, back to Colin. We're with Nancy Butler. She's been uh, telling us about, first of all, her spiritual journey, how she became a Christian uh, at the age of nine, uh, how she got her MBA. She worked for a defense contractor. Then she thought, what am I doing with my life? She wound up after some other twists and turns starting this remarkable church called the Riverfront Family Church. It's in Glastonbury now. It was in the old G. Fox building for a while. And she's also facing ALS. She has ALS. She's here in her wheelchair. So we were just talking during the break about this. You've you've got some choices to make. You've got some things yeah. that you've got to decide uh, about uh, the rest of this disease. So So tell us about that. Yeah. When I first got the diagnosis, I literally started just planning my funeral, thinking, well, I've got a year or two, and then I'm out of here. And then a friend in our church actually emailed me about this guy named Augie Nieto, mm-hmm. who has been living on a respirator for 10 years, and he's still 
you know, on boards and doing things. And, and I realize I've got to decide, do I want to, he's completely paralyzed with a trach and can't speak. Um, but the respirator is keeping him alive. And then he also told me about this thing called a diaphragm pacer, which extends the life of your diaphragm, which you have to like wires sticking out of you. And then you also have to have a feeding tube because your swallowing muscles go. So I realize I have to decide, do I want to turn into the bionic woman and extend all this or just say, hey, I've had a great life and peace out. I looked at what it was like to have the feeding tube and the trach and the um, the wires sticking out of you and people writing what it felt like to be basically kind of electronically zapped every minute in order to breathe and the sound of, you know, the respirator of your whole life and everything. And I honestly was thinking to myself, it's just not me. Like, I can't even stand to have an IV in me. Like, I'm very sensitive to, like, sounds and lights and feelings. And I was like, I am not the kind of person that can live with all these machines hooked up to me. I have to decide. Do I want to become the bionic woman or do I want to just go as peacefully into the night as possible? And you said your first reaction looking at all this stuff on YouTube was the latter, right? Yeah. It was interesting timing. I One afternoon I was looking at all that stuff and I, I looked at the wires and I looked at the feeding tube and I looked at the trach on YouTube and I just said, that's it. I am like out of here. At this point, we're telling the doctors I'm just going to opt for all the crazy technology and what they said is, if at any point in time, my quality of life becomes so poor that I don't want to live anymore, they bring in hospice and they unplug your respirator, and that's that. So it's kind of a weird, weird medical choices I have to make. And there's something else you were telling me downstairs, too, about a thing where you use your eyes to explain yep. that. Yeah. There's a, many different technologies and communication devices, but I think it's called a Toby board. Your eyes look at the letters, and it rec- it's eye recognition software or something, and it spells the letters out. So there's many communication devices, but they're about 10% of the rate of normal speech or typing. So I was saying I have to be like Yoda, just say deep spiritual <laughs> things that people hang on to because I have ALS. I don't know. So <laughs> that's kind of how your life is. First of all, I should say I've been feeling over the last few weeks the same thing that somehow or other the day that I read on Facebook that you had ALS – that, as I keep saying, I really did kind of hear the little voice, and I feel like there and i 've been coming out of your church the last two weeks thinking there absolutely just feels like there 's some reason why this is happening, you know, and why i 'm here listening to you, and there 's things that you 're saying that are resonating with me and but not just stuff that you say too, just sort of sitting in that church with those people, I just feel. Like I'm supposed to be sitting there. So yeah. who knows what that means? On the other hand, the other thing that I, I do think, I said it before, but I'm sure everybody's thinking it too, is how can this church exist with no Nancy Butler? I mean, nobody lives forever. Uh, you weren't going to live forever before right. you got right. ALS. Right. But this is really your church. I mean, it really is kind of you. You know, you you wear it and it wears you. So you you must think about this too. I mean, I think a pastor has not done a good job if the church dies the minute they leave. Part of my job is training lay leaders and creating a culture and um, a leadership team in the church. And it will change because pastors have different personalities and that I think a church needs a spiritual leader. But my hope is that the church goes on without me and that I've created a strong enough leadership team that they can pick another pastor someday. And it might change, but it'll still be good and have the values that we planted the church with. You know, there's a big difference between the word evangelical and the word evangelism. At least to me, there's a big difference. And so I'm sort of wondering about how you feel about this church in terms of who's there every day. What is it you think that the church needs to do? It's apparently not to get everybody thinking and believing exactly the way that you think and believe. 
actually do believe in evangelism. I know it's like, you know, the dirty E word or whatever, but um, I would not have met God if that crazy lady from my town hadn't rounded up kids and sent them to like Cortland Bible Camp. It doesn't hurt to hear things. It's free country, free speech. So mm-hmm. I actually believe in evangelism. Um, not like everyone has to be like me, but I think Jesus did say, go into all the world and teach them what I taught. I think God loves everybody and he speaks to us all in many different ways. I'm a huge advocate of interfaith understanding and believing that God is in other religions. But I actually do think one of the many, it's not everything, but one of the missions of the church is evangelism. Is um, It benefited me, you know, mm-hmm. is, is to have the opportunity to decide for yourself if this is true or not. We're talking to Nancy Butler right now from uh, the church that, well, we're not in the church right now, but I'm talking to her about the church that she founded, the Riverfront Family Church. Was there a reason for that name? I mean, obviously, you were in the G. Fox building. You're on the river. You're down in— I I had this big dream. I had so many dreams now in Pana. But I wanted to be in that J.C. Boathouse, you know, down on Jennings Road or whatever. I fell in love with it. I was like, oh, it's natural beauty. It's a small—it's just the right size. And they wouldn't rent it to me because I was a church. I kid you not. Mm. So I already named the church and incorporated it, and then I just assumed they'd run it to anybody who would give them X dollars. So here I was stuck with this name that I already incorporated, and I thought, oh, well, I guess all of Hartford is sort of on the riverfront. And also I thought <laughs> Riverfront Recapture was such a cool idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to live near Baltimore, and I saw a lot of what they did there, and I kind of liked the idea of turning Hartford into more of a river-based community. So I thought, well, just like Riverfront Recapture is trying to revitalize the culture and the economy of Hartford, I thought our church could be part of the spiritual renewal of the mm. Hartford area. So that's why I picked Riverfront. And then the fact that we're welcoming and affirming and have probably, you know, 15, 20 percent gay members, um, that word family can kind of mean other things. Another thing that I've noticed in your church is that, for example, last Sunday that you were talking about peace but also talking about war, talking about struggle. You introduced the just war doctrine that St. Augustine kind of developed and and you just asked your parish, your flock, uh, to think a little bit about this, circumstances under which war could be warranted or not warranted. Yeah. But ultimately, you really just sort of let everybody sit with that, right? I mean, yeah. at the end of it, it wasn't like, well, okay, here's the here's the right answer. So I, is that always your process to let people kind of sit yeah, with Yeah, I that? guess I'm an intellectual person, so no, it doesn't matter who's preaching. I sit there and go, in fact, it is a biblical principle. It says test the spirit. So I think no matter who's preaching or what church or what religion you're in, I think each of us at the end of the day are responsible for our own choices. So I think everyone should listen to preaching with a little bit of a, eh, do I buy this or not? But I think our church intentionally creates that yeah, it's funny because I walked out of there and I suddenly thought, wait a minute, she didn't tell me the right answer. And then yeah. I thought, well, I guess I have to come up with the right answer for that. Um, it would be very boring if we all thought the same thing. <laughs> exactly, it would be. Well, look, it's, it's possible that five years from now you'll be sitting back here in the studio and you'll be looking at some board with your eyes and, you know, yeah. it'll be – uh, a different kind of interview, and Valerie, yeah. Valerie will have to be telling yeah, me what. Yeah. So there's there's sort of that possibility. Yeah. Uh, there's another possibility that five years from now you won't be here; you'll be in heaven. If you're in heaven, and if you're if you can see Riverfront Family Church, what what do you want to see there? What what do you hope you see in Riverfront Family Church if you're not here on Earth five years down the road? Yeah, we talk about four kinds of relationships. First is our relationship with God, and so I hope. You know, we encourage them to have a private prayer time every day and to pray together. So I hope that it still has direct communication with God. And then we talk about inside, that your your heart has a pure motive. Then your relationship with each other, that, you know, we have a potluck once a week. So I hope they still are friends and help each other out when they go through hard times. And then the out, that we do something that makes the world um, a better place. 
Well, my deal with you is if you're here, I don't know, that'd be five years, three years, you know, you're doing the thing with your eyes. You're welcome. I want to have you back on the show, you know. That would be interesting. Well, you know, there's this thing called Model Talker. I'm working on it right now where they record your voice and create a synthetic version of your voice. So then when you look with your eyes, a synthetic version of your voice speaks. So it doesn't sound exactly like you, but it's sort of like you. So that'd be like hysterically funny. So I don't know. We'll, (laughs) We'll see what I sound like. You know, I think when you go through periods where you feel as though there's some change coming, then your your antennae are up, right? You're very attuned. Maybe you're like that all the time just because of the life that you've led for all these years. But <laughs> but I've noticed lately just because of, of this and some other things that I'm just very – if there's a little spark in the corner of my eye, I turn quickly and look at it and see what it is. So I came across this and I'm a big fan of Rilke anyway. It flashed across my consciousness for a different reason in the last couple of days and I was reading it and I thought, well, this is kind of uh, Nancy Butler in a way. It says – Rilke says, God speaks to us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me, flare up like a big flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Take my hand. Reminded me a lot of you. And right now, I think you are experiencing both beauty and terror. Yeah, that's very true. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm, I try to follow God one day at a time. Right. Well, we'll have another conversation one way or another. Or if you're in heaven, maybe we can work that out sometime <laughs> yeah. too. Nancy Butler, thank you for spending some time with me. Thanks, Colin. It was really fun. Yeah.